We now believe there are more planets in our galaxy than there are stars, completely changing our view of where life might exist. Let's talk to an expert. Is there life beyond Earth on an exoplanet? And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But that, that's, what, that's what we do as scientists, right? And we can do that now. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. I'm here with Dr. Sean Domigo-Goldman. He is a research scientist and astrobiologist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Sean studies rocky exoplanets, and he wants to know about a planet's surface climate, its habitability, and ecosystems. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me, Jim. I'm a fan of the pod. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, the first planet around another star was discovered in 1992. Now, that's not too long ago. <laughs> and we immediately called it an exoplanet and started looking for more of them. What do we know today about exoplanets? Well, you know, the first for me is that they exist uh, because when I was born, there were none. We had the, at that point, nine planets in our solar system and nothing beyond it. They were an idea. They were something we had talked about finding one day. And, and starting in 92, we started finding them. Now we know of literally thousands of them. And because we know of thousands of them, we also can start looking at them like a, like a census almost. Like, you know, how many planets of certain sizes are there? How many of certain orbits are there? And we're starting to learn a lot of surprising things. We're starting to learn a lot about how common Earth-like planets could be, although that, that Earth-like term is controversial. Basically, when we say that, you know, how, how common are planets that are the size of Earth and get the same amount of energy from their host star that we get from the sun? Um, so we can do that now. You know, I, I can go out with my kid, look at the night sky, count stars, and tell her that on average there's a planet for every star. Wow. You we know, couldn't do that in 92. That's right. You couldn't. In fact, I think what was inhibiting the astronomers prior to that was the concept is, well, the planets are so small, we'll never be able to detect them around a, a star, which as we see it is just a point of light in the in, in, way far away. Yeah, so the, every detection method we have relies on seeing how that point of light from the star changes. In some uh, way. In some way. You know, sometimes it dips because the planet's in front of it. I, You know, the, the analogy I give is it's like uh, if you're of my age, E.T. and Elliot flying in front of the moon oh, and yeah. blocking a lot. Mm -hmm. Or if you've seen an eclipse, you know, the sunlight getting blocked. That when planets do that from far away, it, it just makes the star dim a tiny bit and we can see that. Or if the planet's tugging gravitationally on the star back and forth, we can actually see the motion of the star towards us and then away from us and towards us and away from us. So, but that, you're right. No matter what we do today, with a couple exceptions, um, we're seeing the the star's light change. Um, eventually, we want to see we want to see the planets themselves because then then we can start to tease apart what the planets themselves are like. Yeah, that's not quite the, there yet. Yeah, that's the next big step. Well, you know, as you said, we've found thousands of planets now. They're confirmed. Okay. And we now know there are more exoplanets in our galaxy than there are stars, which is another spectacular concept. Well, what type of planets are they? And, and do, does every planet in our solar system have a counterpart? Every planet in our solar system has a counterpart, but we might be the Portland of solar systems. Like we're weird um, in that we don't have a couple things that we see uh, commonly elsewhere. And that's actually thrown us for a couple uh, of of uh, loops when we're interpreting the data. The, the very first exoplanets we found, there are these things called hot Jupiters. 
So they're like bigger than Jupiter, but they're closer to their parent star than Mercury is to the sun. So they're yeah, really, and really they hot. Could be on elliptical orbits. And they could would, be on elliptical orbits. They can one. be on uh, what's called an inclined orbit. So like, um, if you ever see that like old picture of an atom where there's like you know circles going in different directions, there's there's solar systems where the the the, the orbits are inclined like that. Um, you could almost imagine a system, and it probably exists out there. Um, the hot Jupiters we found first, we didn't know they were planets when we first saw them because they were so foreign to our expectations. Um, we had these predictions there would be very few planets bigger than Earth, but smaller than Neptune and, and Uranus because there's nothing in our solar system of that size. But it turns out that that planets of that size, they don't just exist. They tend to, they're actually the most common size planet we found out there. So for everything we have here, there's an analogy out there, but the opposite is not true. There's far more uh, kinds of planets uh, beyond our solar system than we have in just our one example inside the solar system, the one set we have here. Yeah, you know, when I when this was uh, really early on hot field and, and everyone was looking for um, uh, exoplanets, uh, I, I imagine that the, the planet that we'd find the most would be Jupiter-sized planets. Yeah. And that turns out not to be the case. No, it, it ends up following a, what seems to be a sort of general rule of, 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 of both stars and planets, that the smaller things tend to be more common. Um, although it, it, that may not be true down all the way to the Earth size, but, but certainly down to the size of things slightly bigger than Earth, those are more common than the really bigger things like Jupiter and, and Saturn. I, I, I should correct myself. There is one kind of thing we have here that we haven't found elsewhere yet, and that's moons. If we just are able to find a, a, you know, a planet the size of the Earth around a star, uh, and, and, and some Mercury-sized planets around stars, finding moons has got to be a tough thing to do. Well, what have we learned about our solar system from studying exoplanets? I, for me, I, I think the, the lesson I've taken is how, how our solar system has evolved, um, how the planets formed and changed their orbits over time. Uh, we thought, I think, when, when, you know, 20 years ago before we found all these exoplanets, I think we had an image of the solar system. I, I call it like a peas and carrots. You know, you, you had the small stuff close in, you had the big things back far away, and, and never, never shall the two mix. Um, but because we found these hot Jupiters, these really big things close in, and we found some small things further away, we know that, that, that the, the evolution of these systems is much more dynamic than we, than we ever imagined before. Knowing that um, has informed our, our, our thinking of how our solar system has evolved over time. Um, people have taken improved models that can recreate those exoplanets and apply them to the solar system. And as a result, we can explain why Mars is the size it is and has the orbit it does much better because now we think of these ideas of the gas giants moving in at one point in our solar system's history and then moving back out. Um, that's, it's that kind of thing. We had a model. We, we had some physics, but we knew that the physics that caused that was probably more common from having to use it to recreate the exoplanets. And then taking that back to the solar system, we can tell a better story, a more, more comprehensive story of, of the planets back home which I think is fascinating. Yeah, it is. So let me flip that in, in asking, um, how has our study of the Earth and our solar system informed us about exoplanets? I, I think there's a couple ways. Um, one is a very real practical way in that we have been doing decades of research on Earth, on our climate. Uh, we've been doing decades of research on the planets in our solar system. And that gives us techniques to use. It gives us specific models. My, my research, when I look at exoplanets or try to simulate them, uh, the, the origins of the chemistry code that I use 
goes all the way back to us studying the ozone hole in the late 70s. Um, and we're using that today, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later to study these exoplanets. Um, and we've had lots of specific development um, along the way to make it really good at the exoplanet problem. But it wouldn't be possible if we hadn't been researching Earth and Earth's uh, uh, chemistry and Earth's climate uh, 40, 50 years ago. The other way that it, it's really useful is it gives us some framework when we look at these things. There's a reason we call large planets close into their stars hot Jupiters. And there's a reason we call things between the size of Earth and Neptune super-Earths or sub-Neptunes. It gives us, and, and you know, scientists, sometimes we don't like those phrases because they uh, can be perhaps be too evocative, um, be too specific to some people. But they, for me, and I think for a lot of people in the public, it, it's, it's a, it is a foundation of, of, upon which we can build an idea or a concept. So the, sometimes just the language, even though it can be confusing sometimes and controversial, it does give us a starting point to have a conversation around what is that planet like. It's bigger than Earth. It's smaller than Neptune. And, and that, that, that foundation of experience that we have with the things closer to us can be really useful. Well, you know, right after we started finding exoplanets, Another new concept came up, and, and this was all about, well, a star's light has got to be warming these objects. Where can we look in, this, in, that, in that exosolar system for planets that may actually harbor life? That term was called habitable zone. So how do we really define that today? And, and folks, you know, in the public, if you're listening to this, you, you may have also heard that as the Goldilocks zone, right? You're not too hot. You're not too cold. You're just right. Um, it's mostly based on the the idea that life as we know it needs water. And if we want to look for life on a planet around another star, um, ideally you'd want a lot of water. And the reason you want a lot of water is you want a lot of life so that way it can give, a, give off a huge signal that we could see from across interstellar space and against the background of that really bright star that the planet's next to. So we really, we don't want just life, you know, eking out a living in ice cracks somewhere. We want a big global breathing biosphere that's going to give us a huge signal. And, and for that, what we really need is, a, like I said, a lot of water. So the science word for that is we want liquid water surface oceans. So the habitable zone is all about the region around a star where liquid water surface oceans could exist. And that's what we, because that's what we think we need to get a really big signal from the biosphere. Well, there's some real nuances in that, in the sense that when we look at our solar system, we see Venus is too hot, Mars is too cold, the Earth must be in the habitable zone. But in reality, the Earth itself, with its climate and with its atmosphere, is warming itself, you know, through greenhouse gases. And in fact, it's warmed itself to 80 degrees more than it would be without those uh, those important elements. And so it, it's really in a habitable state, not, a, not necessarily in the habitable zone. That changes over time. Um, it's possible Venus once was habitable. Um, we, we think there's evidence that Mars was at once habitable. Um, so there is, there is you know, if, to, borrow, to borrow Monty Python phrase, you can have an ex-habitable planet <laughs> that where you might have had life before, but you don't, you don't have it now. And that's something, again, we've learned from the, 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 the studies of our planets in the solar system. And it, it's probably true for these exoplanets. There's probably planets out there that were not habitable but might be today or are habitable today but might not be in a, a million or a billion years. There's one other thing I should mention here, which is that um, a professor of mine when I was a graduate student, Richard Alley, who is an expert on, on glaciation and how glaciers change over time uh, here on Earth, he said something to uh, at, a, at, a, at a talk he was giving once. 
He said, if I can tell the story of carbon, I can tell the story of Earth's climate history. And I would actually expand that. If I can tell the story of carbon, I can tell the history of Mars and Earth and Venus in terms of their climate history. And I can also tell you the story of which planets could or could not have life in those liquid water surface oceans. So an understanding of carbon is so essential to a fundamental understanding of climate. It, it, I can tell all of these stories and I can make predictions and they can be right. And I can be a rigorous scientist if I'm allowed to tell the story of carbon. If I cannot tell the story of carbon, I cannot recreate Earth today or Earth a billion years ago or Venus or Mars in their histories or these exoplanets in their habitable zones. Carbon is really essential to climate, whether it's here or elsewhere. Well, taking that concept then into exoplanets, how might we identify life on those exoplanets? That's, a, that's hard. <laughs> so because, you know, what the, the biggest challenge we have is right off the bat is a technical one. Um, the, the, these planets are orbiting stars that are a billion times brighter than the planets themselves. So this is, you know, I tell, imagine you're tracking a, a baseball or, or a plane or a bird in the sky and it flies across the sun. You get blinded. The, you know, the, as a scientist, I would say the detectors, your eyeballs, are getting overwhelmed by the light from the star. The same thing will happen when we look for life on exoplanets because we want to block out the starlight just so we can see the light from the planet. And, and if we don't do that, we're going to get a billion photons from the star just for that one precious uh, photon from that pale blue dot. And then once we do that, we've got a, an entirely different challenge, which is a scientific one, which is how do you take that one poetic pale blue dot and say that it's alive or that it's not? Um, for that, we again actually look at the gases in the atmosphere. So we just we basically put that light through a prism. We get its different color constituents. We call it a spectrum. Uh, and then we look at that spectrum to see if it has gases that life produces. Um, the ultimate test really is, is whether or not that combination of gases is unique to life. Yeah. So what are the combination of gases that we would observe in, a, in an exoplanet that would convince you that there's a biosphere there? So there's one combination in particular that we that I would find very convincing. Most of my colleagues, I think, would, would, would as well. And that's oxygen or ozone, which comes from oxygen, as well as methane. And the reason that's a powerful combination is those two gases tend to destroy each other or lead to reactions that destroy each other. Um, the analogy I give to people is it's like college students and pizza. If you see college students and pizza in the same room, uh, there's a pretty good, uh, you can make a pretty good guess that there's a pizza restaurant nearby. And the reason <laughs> is college students eat pizza fast. And if you have pizza in the same room as college students, chances are somebody made a lot of pizza all at once and brought it to the party. And I can make a pizza, I can make a pretty good pizza actually, but I can't make a whole bunch of pizzas to fill a room full of college students all at once. So in, in other words, the production rate of the pizza required to keep it there in the room with the college students is so high, you know there's got to be a pizza restaurant nearby. And it's yeah. the same thing. So what's happening then is the oxygen and the methane get together so fast, the oxygen pops off the carbon, becomes carbon dioxide. Right. Okay. So then that destroys it. But if you find a lot of oxygen and you find a lot of methane, something must be producing it. Yeah, and it tells fast. you that immediately. And and that so that combination, that oxygen and methane, we see that in our atmosphere. You you can you can t take a spacecraft in the outer solar system, look back at Earth, you'll see it. You can look at the light bouncing off of Earth and then off the moon and back to us, you see it. Oxygen and methane, they're here. We can detect them. And if if someone was looking at us, that's how they would know there was life here. Well, you know, one of the really exciting set of measurements that are being made on Mars is indeed uh, we see very small traces of methane, 
but we're also seeing small traces, traces of oxygen. And that's a new observation. Yeah. That's really tantalizing. Yeah. My colleague, uh, Melissa Trainer here at Goddard was, was a big part of that. And, uh, this is one of those things when we find the unexpected, um, it really pushes us to think really hard about what's going on there. And, and when we answer that question, um, that's when you learn something. And that's, that, that's what makes this fun. Well, what missions are being thought about that could actually make those observations in the future? So the first one, uh, and the one that I'm most excited about in the near term, is the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, that's uh, a real telescope. That's going to yeah, happen. That's going to happen next year. To be honest, we're not expecting that to see biosignatures for all kinds of reasons. The, the, the types of exoplanets it's going to look at are around these really violent stars that might blow away the atmospheres of the planets. Even if we get um, some atmospheres that we see, uh, uh, having the sensitivity to look for these biosignature gases is, is going to be a really tall order for Webb. Plus, it um, looks prob- primarily at the really big planets. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to spend most of its time looking at the bigger planets. There's an outside chance, so I can't rule it out, mm-hmm. but I'm not, right. I'm not expecting yeah. it. Yeah. Longer term, I think our, our chances are better because this is such a hard measurement. You really want to, I mean, this is part of what we do at NASA. We, we take a really hard challenge and then we bring together really brilliant people on the engineering side and the project management side and the budget side. And we say, how do we make this a reality? And, and, and that for this, for this really hard question, I think we really need to start with the question do, do these planets have biosignatures and then design the mission around that? Um, we've got two concept missions, and that word concept is really important to, to focus on because it means they're not, they're not funded. They're not things that have a, a, like a, a specific launch date. They're things that are being considered by the scientific community at this stage. Well, that's necessary to do because you have to oh, be yeah. able to figure out what it would be like if we built a mission to do this. Yeah, we need to know, you know, is a mission that looks for biosignature on, on signs of life on planets around other stars, is that a unicorn or is that a thing we know how to build? And finding out uh, how many technologies we need and how hard that's going to be. And if we got those, how long and how much money the mission might, 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 might take to, to execute. Um, the, just so folks know, the, the two concepts I'm talking about are LUVOIR, which stands for the Large Ultraviolet Optical Infrared Telescope, um, and HABEX, which stands for the Habitable Exoplanet Imager or Observatory. Um, both of those missions would try to do this thing where they block out the starlight, get the pale blue dot, and then see if that pale blue dot has the gases that would constitute a biosignature. With HABEX, what we're talking about doing is we'd like to... Find at least one pale blue dot. Have a high level of confidence. We'll find one pale blue dot, and then roll the dice and see what we see there. With Louvoir, we want to find uh, like up to fifty, the most ambitious versions of Louvoir, fifty pale blue dots, and then start to do some systematic surveys of how many of those planets have oceans, how many of those fifty blue dot pale blue dots have signs of life, um, and we can start to do statistics and not just say is life here on this one world, but how common is life in the universe? And that's, you know, that's getting to some, you know, Drake equation stuff, which I think some of your listeners may have heard of, where, you know, how, what percentage of habitable planets have life? That's the kind of thing Louvoir could start to address. Well, shouldn't we be thinking outside the box and looking for signs of life that are very different than what we know about in terms of our own life? Yeah, this is, this is one of the questions that I get so often, you know, if you've watched Star Trek or Star Wars or any sci-fi, you you, you you see these fantastical things, and then you come to a scientist that like me, and I say, well, I'm going to look for oxygen and, and methane because that's what we have on Earth. Um, it there, it's a it's a tricky balance to play. I, I, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say why is there oxygen and methane on Earth, 
And and if Earth was di- Earth was different at one point in the past, and it had life, and it didn't have oxygen or methane. So one thing I think you're talking to Jada Arnie later this season. One thing her and I have been working on is we've been trying to think of what would uh, biosignatures look like back on Earth when there was no oxygen, but there was still life. That would have been what we call an alien biosphere here on Earth that we have recorded in the rock record. So we start with that. And then from that, we start to tease apart almost like a fundamental theory of biology. If I gave you as a planet a certain combination of gases and a certain kind of energy source, what would the biology on that planet do? We have to, I say we have to, th- what, we have to think like the planet or think like the bacteria on that planet. What's the best strategy for getting energy in that planet? And what would you make as a byproduct for getting that energy? And we look for that. So that's kind of like the very generic version or the general version that would be less tied to Earth. Um, but that's also a model we don't have. It's just a model sort of in my head and in my colleagues' heads that we can talk about on a podcast. But we don't have that numerical model yet that we could use. We, we, we'll have it by the time we fly the mission. Um, but we don't have that today. That's, that's sort of cutting-edge research we're working on. Well, everything we've been talking about with these telescopes really interrogating planets are all, all focusing on that search for life question. But let me ask you this. If we don't find anything after searching in these, uh, with these telescopes that indicate that these planets have life, what does that mean? For me, this is what makes the search for life so much fun because it's profound no matter what the result is. You know, if we find life out there, that changes our, our view of ourselves and our place in the cosmos. But I think that's also true if we don't find anything. I do too. I mean, if we found that we were the only example of a biosphere out there, how precious is what we have here? Um, and, and what does that mean for how we operate in our day-to-day lives going forward? I think, it would have, I think we'd have profound imp- uh, impacts either way. I do too. Because to me, that would indicate if we don't find life like us at all after many decades of searching, that maybe complex life like us ends up dying quickly, which, yeah. you know, from, from a human perspective is a sad thing to think about. But I would want to know that. Yeah. I would want to use that in thinking of how we would change that paradigm that we as a species could do that because we have the ability to do that and we don't let what happens destroy us. Well, that, that's part of where this becomes fun because this, we're talking about exposing these questions to the scientific method, which means that we won't stop at a certain point. So if we found there was nothing, what you're getting at is we'd ask why. Yeah, that's why right. Why is there no life out there? Right. And we learn from that. The other part of this is I am expecting, I cannot wait for all my models to be wrong about why there is or is not life and what kind of life is out there, because that's when we're going to learn something about the interaction between a planet and its biosphere. And like, as you were saying, knowing that is going to change how we operate back here at home. And I I I can't wait for that. Yeah, I think so too. Well, uh, okay. Let me ask you this. Do you think we are alone in the galaxy? Um, I don't, but more importantly, I'm, I'm, I'm going to prove it. You know, oh, that's, cool. that, that's what's cool, right? Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, going to go out right. and we're going we're gonna to search. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But that, that's, what, that's what we do as scientists, right? And we can do that now. That's right. So, okay, with that perspective, will we find uh, evidence of life beyond Earth first in our solar system before we find it in exoplanets or the reverse? What's your thought on that? Uh, that's a tough one. I... You know what I'm doing right now is I'm like laying out the mission timelines on a chart almost. I think 
we'll find life outside. I think we'll find evidence of life outside the solar system first, but I think we'll be convinced that we found life inside the solar system first. In other words, I think we'll get the first paper saying, oh, I found something there beyond the solar system before we have that here in the solar system. But I think the rigorous proof that will convince the full scientific community will come from inside the solar system first. Yeah. All right. So you personally, how would you react to the discovery of life? Am I on the paper? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you are, then you're going to defend um, it. Yeah. If I'm on the paper, I'm probably, you know, popping a champagne bottle and <laughs> taking a long vacation. Um, I mean, this, if, if, the immediate reaction, if I'm not on the papers, I'm going to be taking a good hard look at it. Right. I think even trying to get at, like, how, how would I react once I'm convinced, whether I'm on the paper or not? If I'm on the paper, I guess this moment would just happen earlier when I've convinced myself that the data are there. Um, I, I think my first reaction would be kind of a sense of um, relief, um, it, just because a lot of my career is oriented around this search. So I—, I and this is a sense of accomplishment. Accomplishment, even if it wasn't me, the fact right. that we did it, I would, I would just feel um, relieved and satisfied. Um, I'd probably plan a vacation, even if it wasn't my discovery. Um, and then, and then, you know, it, it's so hard for me to break out of the out of the the thinking of a scientist. It, you know, if I'm convinced, I, then I want to know, well, what is that life like? Yeah, it's the next level of detail that you're going to go into. Yeah, on a on a more philosophical level, I think the other thing I'd, I'd start to think about is. How, how do we share this with the world? Because I think what, what, what I think would be more important to me is if I was really convinced, I'd want my neighbor to know about it and them to be convinced and understand from a scientific standpoint what we're talking about. Because we're, we're not talking about, you know, little green beings. Well, we're talking about tiny green beings. Like we're talking about bacteria. That's so, how it might start. Yeah. yeah I, mm -hmm. And I think getting, getting, getting to that point with, you know, my neighbor coming up to me and telling me about it, that would be, I guess, my next goal is I'd want someone on the street to come up to me and tell me, hey, did you hear about what NASA did? Like, that's, that's where I'd want to get to. Well, Sean, you know, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was the person, place, or thing that happened to them in their life that got them so excited that they became a scientist and they pursued intensely the field, in your case, of exoplanets. I call that a gravity assist. So, uh, I... What I was have, yours, Sean? My gravity assist was I was I was in high school and I was debating between whether I wanted to be a sports broadcaster uh, or a you know some sort of academic, and um, I I picked up a book called The Case for Mars, which was about you know sending humans to Mars one day, and that just it blew me away. And and the the very end of that book started to get into astrobiology of what this is part of what humans could do on Mars is look for signs of life, and I I thought that was like. The, 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 the idea that we could apply the scientific method of that question, uh, it totally just got me focused on that. And, yeah. and I've got Bob Zubrin. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Bob Zubrin. So that, that really put me on a path towards uh, really wanting to pursue astrobiology, actually, as a career. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there was one faculty member at my university that was doing research on that a couple years later. So that, that's what, that's what Ariel Anbar should give him a shout out. He, that's what set me down this path. Well, Sean, thanks so much for joining me in this Gravity Assist. Thank you. And, and you know, you, on, on the Gravity Assist thing, you gave me a Gravity Assist too, because then I, you know, fast forward, I, I came and worked for you years later. And, and uh, I learned a lot about not just how science is done, but how we lead science communities and, and lead projects and, and teams. And 
uh, that's a big part of what we do at NASA too. And that's, I think it really set me up for a successful career here at the agency. So thank you very much, Sean. Yeah, thank you, Jim. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.